All right, let's turn to Second John. It's not hard to find. There's only one chapter, and it comes right after First John. Second John. We're picking it up in verse eight. We will be looking today at verses eight and nine. Uh, leading up to this, let me read the couple of verses before. Actually, I'm going to go back to verse six and just catch this up a little bit. This is love that we walk according to His commandments. And we talked last week about the opposite of love, which is obviously hatred, but it's also connected to deception. Because if we really love someone, we will do all that we can to prevent them from falling into deception. This is the commandment that, as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. So John's reminding them of something they'd already learned from the very beginning of their walk with Christ, and that is the commandment to love one another to agape one another. And then verse 7, for, and it's interesting how John connects loving one another with deception. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. We covered that in depth last week. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And so interestingly, loving one another with agape love, God's unconditional love, is the opposite of being deceived or leading people into deception. We pick it up here in verse 8. Look to yourselves that we do not lose things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book of 2 John. Though it is brief, it is chock full of very important and useful information, instruction, guidance, we ask that you'd help us to hear it with our spiritual ears, not just our physical ears, but be able to hear it with our spiritual ears, which connects to our hearts and our minds, that we'd be able to absorb these truths and put them into practice in our own lives. Bless this time of study now, Father, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Very interesting, verse 8, John says, look to yourselves. Most of us are really good at looking at others, aren't we? Examining others, evaluating others, while ignoring ourselves. But John says, look to yourselves. There are a lot of scriptures, you probably know this, but there are many scriptures that encourage self-examination as opposed to scrutinizing others. Psalms 139, 23, 24. You hear me quote this quite often. Search me, O God. This is David's prayer to the Father. And know my heart. Now, why would David ask God to know his heart? Doesn't David know his own heart? Not as well as God does. And a lot of times we don't want to know our own heart, do we? Because according to Jeremiah, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? And the answer again is, God. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. Try me or test me. One of the ways that we find out what's really in our hearts is when God allows us to be tested in different ways. It's the old expression, trials will make you bitter or better. It's a test. This is the test of the emergency broadcast system. We think we're doing so great, and we're so spiritual. (laughs) 
I'm Joe, I'm Joe Christian. How are you? And then the tests come and we find out who we really are. I don't know about you guys. I've flunked a lot of tests in my spiritual life. I've shared one good testimony many times when I had my heart attack. That's a really good test. When you think you're going to die, and according to the doctor, I had a 60% chance of doing just that. That was a good test. How would I react? How, how would I respond? I was good. I was ready to go. I was ready to see Jesus. That was encouraging to me. You don't know how you're going to react to that situation. And not everyone has the opportunity. Sometimes you're dead in an instant, right? But I had a chance to find out. And it was encouraging. But I've flunked a lot of other tests in my life, and I'm sure you have too. Try me. Test me. Know my anxieties. Probably the number one problem with people in the world today, anxiety. Stress, tension, fear, worry. See if there's any wicked way in me. Well, David, don't you know? Well, I might know, but I'm trying to hide it best I can. So God, please show me. Why? Why would David want to know these things? Why would he want to be tested? Why would he want God to expose his anxieties? Why would he want God to see if there was any wicked way in him? Because he knew that those things would be a hindrance in his walk with God, in his spiritual life. And every, actually, it impacts every area of our lives, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual. And then finally, David says, lead me in the way everlasting. Now, we could, would, and should pray for others, but you notice David's first priority was his own spiritual condition. Lead me in the way everlasting. How often do we pray, Lord, please show so-and-so the error of their ways. Do you ever pray like that? Father, please straighten out my husband. Please straighten out my wife, my co-worker, right? My son, my daughter, my mom, my dad. But John says, look to yourselves. That's exactly what David's doing here in Psalm 139. He's looking to himself. And you'll remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 5, hypocrite. Not me. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In other words, again, look to yourself. We really can't help anyone else unless we're maintaining our own walk with God. We've talked about maintenance, how we're responsible for our maintenance over these eternal souls that God has given us as he's given us the precious gift of eternal life through Christ but once we've received that gift we have a responsibility for our maintenance John 21 20 through 22 Peter this is toward at the very end of the gospel of John Jesus is having a talk with Peter John the beloved who wrote the book we're studying today was following at a distance trying to hear what they were talking about. They're still competing. All along in the Gospels, we see Peter and John competing, even having a foot race to the empty tomb, always trying to one-up the other. So John's following, trying to listen in on this conversation. This is where Jesus tells Peter, Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. But Peter's aware that John's over here watching, trying to listen Peter 
turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following. you got to believe that was bugging Peter. Who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So we know who it is, even though John is the one writing the gospel. He doesn't mention his name. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved in all humility. Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, now he's just had this back and forth. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Take care of my lambs. Feed my sheep. And even after all that, Peter sees John and he goes, hey, what about this guy? But Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remains till I come, what is that to you? You, Peter, follow me, Jesus. Does that sound like looking to yourself? That's what Jesus is telling Peter. Just like John's telling us here, 1 John 1, 8, look to yourselves. Peter was looking at John. Instead of just focusing on what Jesus had instructed him, feed my sheep. Be faithful, Peter, to what I've called you to do. Yeah, but what about him? Is he going to be vacationing on the Riviera while I'm out preaching the gospel or what? What is it to you if he remains till I come? Which, by the way, would mean John would have lived to be about 2,000 years old. Because Jesus hasn't come yet, but guess what? He's coming soon. Look to yourselves. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. Paul writes, and this was in the context of communion or the Lord's Supper, let a man examine himself and then so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Self-examination. So as I said, there are many scriptures that encourage, promote self-examination. And that's what John is saying here. Look to yourselves. We can pray for others. We should. But always focusing what other, on what others are doing or not doing can be a tremendous distraction. At the end of the day, we're only going to be held accountable and responsible for ourselves. Right? Everyone will have to stand before God and give an account. Look to yourselves. And then he says that we do not lose those things we worked for. Now this is interesting. Why is John talking about works when according to Paul we are saved by grace? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. And that's why I tell you, pray for your loved ones that don't know the Lord. Pray that God will give them the gift of faith because it is a gift of God. We don't muster it up from within ourselves, conjure it up from inside. Faith to trust God, to believe in God, to believe in Christ is a gift from God. You've been saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. You can't earn your salvation. You can't work for it, lest anyone should boast. Yeah, man, I worked really hard, and then I got saved. It doesn't work that way. So what's John talking about? That we do not lose those things that we work for. Well, we don't work for salvation, but there's another aspect to what will happen when this life is over. As a believer, we will receive that which has been promised 
eternal life. But there's, the Bible also has a lot to say about rewards or lack of rewards for the believer. In terms of working, Philippians 2.12, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only. So Paul's commending the Philippians. You know, some people will act one way when you're there and another way when you're not. Paul says, you've always obeyed. They obeyed Paul as their spiritual leader, father, mentor, pastor. Because Paul said, imitate me even as I imitate Christ. To the degree that any man or woman is imitating Christ, that's someone that we can emulate, that we can follow because we know they're following God. They can be a mentor, a leader, a teacher, an instructor to us. But now much more in my absence, he says. So Paul obviously was getting reports from people there in Philippi that the people were doing even better than when he was there, walking in obedience to the Lord. But then he tells them, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, Paul is not talking about working to be saved. He's talking about working at becoming the person God already says you are. Because in Christ, we're clothed in his robes of righteousness. I know it's hard for you and I to grasp or to, to understand. It's above and beyond our pay grade. But when God looks at you as a believer, he sees perfection. Now, when I look in my mirror, I don't see that, do you? But it's amazing. God does. He sees perfection. But Paul says, now, your responsibility, believer, as I talked about this idea of maintenance, maintaining your salvation, which is what he's saying here, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, that has to do with respect for God, a desire to please Him, a desire to be obedient, a fear of messing up. Because the less we fear messing up, the more we probably will. And sadly, again, in today's world, it seems like there are many who identify as believers that have no fear of, of quote, messing up because they don't think you can mess up. Because you're saved by grace through faith, not of works, you can do whatever you want. That's not what the Bible teaches. We still have a responsibility, even once we're saved, even though once we've received the precious gift of eternal life, we have a responsibility. And that's what John's been emphasizing here in this one-chapter book of Second John, obeying God's commandments, walking in obedience, and this is directly connected to love. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So that we do not lose those things we worked for. We're not working for salvation. That's a gift. But Paul says work out your salvation. Work on becoming that perfect follower of Christ that God already says you are. Justified by faith, just as if I'd never sinned. Sanctified, set apart for God's holy purposes. The moment we're born again, that's the way God sees us, but that's not the way we are necessarily. And we have to work at it. And we will never fully achieve it in this life, but that's why Paul says, I press on to that high calling. And then John says, 
but that we may receive a full reward. So what does that tell us? It's altogether possible that some believers may not receive a full reward. And a full reward would be everything that God wants you to have, everything He has in store for you. Again, not salvation. We don't work for our salvation, but there are rewards in store for us for those who do the right things for the right reasons. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 and 12. Actually, we'll go up through verse 14. No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ has to be the foundation for our lives. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Do you see a difference here? The first three items, gold, silver, precious stones, those last, don't they? Now, you may have rings or other jewelry made out of gold or silver, precious stones. They may get broken, but they don't go away. The gold can always be reused. It can be melted down and used again. The ring can be repaired. Stones, precious stones, almost impossible to destroy those. But wood, hay, and straw, that's a whole different story, isn't it? Those things are flammable, are they not? So the goal is to to make it to heaven using materials that are non-flammable. You see? That's why I said doing the right things for the right reasons. And then Paul goes on in verse 13, each one's work will become clear. Now here on this earth, it's not always clear. Sometimes we give great acknowledgement, credit to some who maybe aren't doing the right things for the right reasons. But from outward appearances, they are. And then there may be others you think, oh man, that guy's a real loser. And God sees them totally differently. And so it'll be made clear, if you notice, he says, on that day. The day will declare it, the big D day. The day of the Lord. When we stand before him, we stand before his Bema seat. That's not a judgment seat. It is a seat of, it's a judgment seat, but it's a judgment of our works. Our sins have already been dealt with by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. The Bema seat was the one in the Greek games where they would stand up to receive their rewards. And my grandson, I'll brag a little bit, was at the state cross-country championships on Saturday, Rio Rancho, he took sixth in the state in the 5A division. Pretty proud of him. And he's only a sophomore, okay? And so there are about 150 runners in his class, I believe, and he was sixth. I'm bragging. But I'm reminded, see, when They got up on the platform there to give out the medals. He was up there. The top ten runners got medals. And then their team, Volcano Vista, was second in the state overall. But they're all up there on the stage, and they're giving out the medals. And it's just like what we're talking about here today. Now, all the 150 kids deserve credit, right? I usually feel bad for that last kid who comes straggling in four or five minutes after everybody else. I feel bad for him, but I... I commend them for hanging in there, right? And it's going to be that way when we get to heaven. Jude, the book of Jude, it talks about, you know, some getting in with the flames licking at their backsides, you know. Hey, dude, what's that black spot on your robe, man? 
<laughs> it might be a little embarrassing, but you're just going to be glad to be there, right? But that's what John's talking about here, not missing out on any of the rewards that God has in store for us. If we do miss out, we still get the reward of being with God in paradise forever. Each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. So here and now, sometimes we give too much credit to some people, not enough to others. Because only God is truly just and fair and righteous and holy. And God will level that playing field. The day will declare it because it will be revealed, uh uh-oh, by fire. Huh? So we may go marching in there with our little bag of good works. And God's going to tell, you know, Gabriel, hey, Gabe, go get that, uh, that torch for me. That, what do they call those lighters like they use for the barbecue? The big, it's just like a torch. Gabe, go get the torch, will you? Let's see what this guy's got in his bag. And they light it on fire. And after everything burns off, what remains, you see? The wood, the hay, and the stubble is not going to make it, is it? You might have had a big bag of wood, hay, and stubble coming in. Oops. And you might have a little tiny bag, but, wow, that's sure heavy for such a little bag. But it's full of gold and silver, precious stones. The fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. And that's exactly what John's talking about here. Look to yourselves. Because by the time we get there, it's too late. Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven. But the time that we do that is while we're here on earth. By the time we get there, it's too late. You're going to get what you're going to get. That's why John says, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things that we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. 1 Corinthians 9.24, Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. You know, if we were all living our lives this way, the church would be so much more dynamic, so much more powerful, so much more effective in this world. If we were all running the race, we're competing against one another. It's a healthy competition. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It's a healthy competition. Challenging each other. To be more faithful to God, more faithful to Christ, stronger in our testimony and our witness, more dedicated and committed to the things of God rather than the earthly temporary things that hinder us. Paul talks about that, setting aside those things that hinder. Do you not know that those, all those who run in a race, they all run, but one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. How many believers today are just simply jogging along, right? Not running in such a way as to obtain the prize. 9.27 of 1 Corinthians, I beat my body. So Paul tells us how to get there. It's just like, again, my grandson, he was having trouble for a few weeks there. Trouble with his knees, his ligaments, really struggling, wasn't able to practice every day. Had to go to some physical therapy and so forth. But he fought it out. He hung in there. He endured. And he got the prize. You've got to beat your body and make it my slave, Paul says. 
so that I have, after I have preached to others, and again, this is where we're so good, right? Not only looking at others rather than ourselves, but telling others how they ought to do it, right? After I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul's not talking about losing his salvation, but he is talking about not receiving the rewards that God has in store for him in eternity. And he says, if I want to win the race, and again, at the end of the day, this is a race where there can be many winners. Out of all the millions of believers that have come and gone in the last 2,000 years, there will be many winners. All those who have run in such a way to, as to obtain the prize won't be just one person. It'll be many. But there'll also be many, apparently, who won't. Philippians 4.13, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. We're beginning to get to an important aspect of this here. We'll explore it more in a moment. But notice, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is a little sneak preview. So many believers tend to think of the rewards being here and now, especially if you're in the uh, prosperity camp, the faith teachings, how that if God really loves you, then you'll be rich. You just need to name it and claim it. It's more like demand it. But the rewards that John is talking about, the rewards, uh, how much earthly reward do you think John and Peter and Paul and the rest of them got? You know what kind of earthly rewards they got? Beating and stoning and beheading and homelessness. Because they spent their lives out on the road, planting churches, preaching the gospel, staying wherever they could, eating whatever was put in front of them, oftentimes leaving their families at home for weeks and months at a time. Don't try to preach to these apostles about the prosperity doctrine. It doesn't fly. These men, men laid down their lives for the gospel because they knew that the rewards they were looking forward to were heavenly rewards, and they are eternal. Colossians 2.18, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels. There was a guy years ago, I can't remember his name, I think his last name was Buck. Maybe it was Roland Buck. He wrote a book called Angels on Assignment. And so for a while there was this thing going around and everybody all this talking about angels and, you know, what was the TV show, Touched by a Hot-Looking Angel? Is that what it was called? I used to say Touched by a Sexy Angel. Rona, what was her name? Rona what? Downey, that's right, Roma Downey, yeah. I mean, she seems like a sweet lady, but I just thought it was funny, you know, Touched by a sexy angel but angels are just servants they're ministering spirits sent forth by God to serve us why in the world would anybody worship an angel right Jesus didn't even die for angels you know what happened to the fallen angels don't you they were sent to hell with, with the devil 
Only human beings did Christ die for. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. So John's letting us in on a little secret here. One of the ways we can be disqualified for our prize is by falling prey to deception, false teachers, false doctrine. And that's happened to a lot of people. I've told you this so many times, and you know it. The number one target for cult groups is weak Christians. Christians who don't know the, the Bible. Christians who haven't been well taught, well trained. Christians that are not disciplined. Christians that are not in fellowship and relationship with other strong believers. And so they fall prey to deception. And that can disqualify you for the prize. The Father's desire is that all of his kids would be rewarded fully. How do we know that? Because John's encouraging us with that. That we may be rewarded fully. That we would all receive, each would receive, all the glorious treasures that he has stored up for us in his eternal kingdom. The tricky part is we don't really fully understand what that looks like, what those treasures will look like. We read about crowns and casting our crowns at his feet and so forth. We also read about various levels of responsibility in his millennial kingdom and then perhaps going on into eternity. And so oftentimes we find it much easier to focus on the things that we can have and achieve here and now, but in light of eternity they are pretty much worthless, meaningless. The only one that can prevent us from receiving that which God has for us. The only one that can prevent us from being rewarded fully is you and me. By failing to do the things that John's been encouraging us to do in his writings. One, to walk in the truth. If we fail to walk in the truth, the chances are extremely high we will not receive a full reward. Two, to walk in love. To love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. If we fail to walk in the truth and fail to walk in love, and as we've learned, the two go hand in hand, you can't have one without the other, then that would prevent us. If we fail to do those things, that would prevent us from receiving a full reward. And here we go, just to confirm what I said a few moments ago. Revelation 22.12, Behold, Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, that was written 2,000 years ago, so isn't the Bible full of baloney? Because 2,000 years certainly isn't quick. Two things. One, Peter rightly tells us that with the Lord, one day is like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is like a day. So quickly to God and quickly to us are two different things. Because again, God operates outside the realm of time and space. To God, everything is right now. He is the great I am, not the great I was or the great I will be. Secondarily, what the word really means here in the Greek is not necessarily that he would come quickly as in, you know, this is written in, say, around 90 A.D., I'm coming in 91 A.D. or what have you. No, it means that when things begin to happen, Jesus told us that the last days, it would be like a woman in, uh, ready to give birth, a woman uh, in labor, 
and that the closer we get to the end, the more intense and more frequent the labor pains would be. And so when he says, I come quickly, what he means is when all these events begin to unfold within the course of human history, when that time comes, it'll accelerate very rapidly. In fact, we're told in the Gospels, unless the days be shortened, no flesh would be saved. So it's going to get so intense. A combination of the outpouring of God's judgments upon an unbelieving world, it's called the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, coming very soon to a planet near you. It's a combination of that and man, the ultimate unleashing of man's own hostility towards his fellow man. Do we see that coming down the pike? I mean, most of us here today have grown up since childhood under the fear of nuclear holocaust. Some of us used to have nuclear bomb drills where they would tell you to get under your desk as if that's going to keep you from getting incinerated by a nuclear bomb. Right? <laughs> what a joke. We've been living under that our whole lives. And, by the way, I think people today are a lot less aware and concerned about that today than they were 50 years ago. And guess what the Bible says? When they shall say, peace and safety, you know, oh, the world is getting so close to being peaceful and safe. You know, the only thing standing in the way are the Christians and the United States of America. If we get rid of those two things, man, it's going to be paradise on earth, right? If we can just destroy the sovereignty of the greatest nation in the world, we're the biggest threat, according to many. It's actually the opposite. The last time I checked, in spite of all the naysayers, the liberals who trash our country, trash our founders, Last time I checked, I think we saved the world from two world wars, from uh, being conquered by uh, the, the Nazis and the Imperial Japanese and what have you, the communists, the Soviet Union. Unless I don't know my history, I'm pretty sure that happened, didn't it? And I know a guy in a high position who recently said if they don't like it, they need to go back where they came from. And I tend to agree with him, to tell you the truth. We used to say that, America, love it or leave it. Now it's just the opposite. If you don't hate America, then you, you know, we hate you. Oops, didn't mean to go there today, but it's hard not to. Behold, I come quickly, my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. There's that word again. When Jesus comes, he's coming quickly. When it all starts to go down, it's going to go down really fast. That's why now is the time to be prepared. Now is the time to get right with God. Now is the time to give your life to Christ. Because when it all starts happening, it's going to go down real quick. And nothing's going to be quicker than the rapture of the church. In the twinkling of an eye, the believers are going to be gone. And if you're left behind, you can still get saved, but it ain't going to be pretty. Because the book of Revelation talks about believers being beheaded. That's already happening in certain parts of the world. 
But once the rapture takes place and that world leader known as the Antichrist comes to power, there will be no place to hide. I'd rather be watching from the balcony. How about you? To give to everyone according to his work. Again, if you're not saved, you ain't getting nothing anyway. What's that old song? I'm getting nothing for Christmas. But as a believer, God's plan, His purpose, His intention is to reward His faithful servants. But those rewards come when we see Him face to face. Anything that we get in this life is just frosting on the cake. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? That's the words of Christ as well. It's sad how many people who identify as believers put almost their entire focus on what they can get from God here and now when we should be focusing on the eternal heavenly rewards. 2 John 1.9 Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. All right. Whoever transgresses, the NIV says, whoever runs ahead. The New American Standard Bible says, whoever goes too far. Whoever runs ahead or goes too far. Here John is likening a departure from the truth to running ahead. You ever heard that expression, getting ahead of yourself? Like a child on a hike with its dad or mom who starts to run ahead, gets lost, falls over a cliff, falls into a lake. When you run ahead, when you go too far, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, many have done that today. They've departed from the simplicity of the gospel, from the absolute truth of God's word, and they've gone too far. They've run ahead into the emergent church, the purpose-driven church, and all the other stuff. And they're about to fall over a cliff and they don't even know it. Whoever transgresses, runs ahead, goes too far and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ. Well, what is the doctrine of Christ? Is it what uh, the late great Paul Crouch says it is? Or Benny Hinn? Or, you know, uh, Kenneth Copeland? Or any other number of guys that I would... Or even Rick Warren, Joel Osteen? Is that the gospel of Christ? This! Is the gospel of Christ. John started to clap and then he held back. <laughs> Somebody's got to start it. No. I don't care if you clap or not, but it's encouraging. It really is. I miss the judge. Hallelujah. Amen. I miss that. It kind of helps the pastor, you know. It's kind of like revving your motor. As if I needed that, right? Those who get antsy, antsy, anxious, and bored with the plain things. And I've seen that happen with different groups, and that's how splinter groups get started and breakaway groups and so forth, is that one day a person or a group of people decide these guys just don't know where it's at anymore, and we do. And so we're going to take it to the next level. People who get antsy, anxious, bored with the plain things. Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, 
The plain thing is the main thing. And the gospel is plain and clear and straight ahead. Thank you, Jack. (laughs) Prayer, Bible study, fellowship, walking daily by faith. But then they say, well, I need a spiritual buzz, man. I remember years ago, my wife and I were in Arizona. I think we we just had Taylor then. I don't even know if Tara was on the verge of being born. Many years ago. And we were at a church there in Phoenix at the time. That was a charismatic church. We liked it. I was doing some worship with a young adult group and so forth. But I remember this one guy came up to me all excited one day. I'd never even heard of Benny Hinn. I didn't know who he was. I didn't travel in those circles, thank God. And he goes, I can't wait. I can't wait. Benny Hinn's coming on such and such. And, oh, I just, I'm going to get, oh, wow. He was so excited. Like, I really can't get excited about God until Benny Hinn shows up. You see? I need that spiritual buzz. So-and-so is coming. I can't just read the Bible, pray, worship, fellowship, and get excited about God. I need a buzz. I need a jump start. I need an experience. And that's exactly where they're coming from with the emergent church and all this stuff. There's other branches. They all feed into the same stream. It's a toxic waste site, in my opinion. And there are those who say, you know, I just need a porpoise in life. The porpoise-driven life, you see? Sounds like an animal rights group to me. Okay. Whoever transgresses, runs ahead, goes too far, and does not abide, which means, as you know, means to live in, continue in, the doctrine or the teaching of Christ. Those who have departed from the true faith and those are those who have given themselves over to the teaching of men. The Bible warns about that. We've got a lot of groups like that out there. We know who they are. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, he just slammed the Mormons. I'm sorry. There's an old expression, call a spade a spade. Well, you, got, you call a cult a cult. Maybe not in today's world. It's not politically correct because they put out all these commercials and advertisements promoting themselves as just another Christian denomination. Well, that's just your standard garden variety everyday lie from the pit of hell. Did he say that? Yes, he did. Jehovah's Witnesses. And there's others. Those are two of the biggest culprits, as we know. But I put emergence and purpose-driven under that, too, in my opinion. All these groups started out as believers... But they ran ahead of God, ultimately did not have, uh, did not and have not continued in the teaching of Christ. I mentioned Jude. Jude 1.3, dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share. So Jude's original intention in his one chapter book, his letter, his original intention was to discuss the doctrine of soteriology, which is salvation. I was eager to write to you about salvation that we share to go in depth on that topic. But he said, I found it necessary to write to you and urge you to continue your vigorous defense of the faith that was passed down to the saints once and for all. So what Jude found out was, I just wanted to write a nice letter about salvation, lay down some doctrinal information on the subject of salvation. But then he got word about false teaching, heresy, false doctrine, deception, and he had to warn these people that he was writing to 
to vigorously defend the faith that was passed down to the saints once and for all. Folks, that's what I'm attempting to do, to vigorously defend the faith that was passed down to the saints once and for all. Once and for all means it's all right here. There is no new doctrine. There's no new teachings. There's only further enlightenment and understanding of what God has already given us. And when anybody comes down the pike with something new and different, it has to be rejected immediately. And that's the deception that John warns about in this book of 2 John. And, I mean, this is hardcore stuff, man. This is the disciple whom Jesus loved telling you that whoever runs ahead, goes too far, transgresses, does not abide or continue in the doctrine or teaching of Christ, does not have God. Well, who are you to judge? I'm nobody, but God is the judge, and we can make a determination based upon the truth of His Word. You see? I'm not judging you. God said it. If you don't stick with the doctrines of Christ, the teachings of Christ, then you don't have God. I'm glad I didn't say this. But if someone doesn't have God, then it's safe to say he doesn't have them either, right? Isn't that how it works? Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus comes after us. When people say, I found God, I always find it kind of funny. First of all, I didn't know God was lost. I know what they mean. There's nothing wrong with saying, I found God. But the truth of the matter is, He found you. He came to seek and to say, you were lost. He found you. If you don't have Him, if you're not abiding, continuing in the true doctrines of Christ, the teachings of Christ, then you don't have God. And guess what? If you don't have Him... He doesn't have you either. If there, is, if there isn't any relationship or fellowship with God, then that person is lost. And this is where it gets kind of sticky because the, the questions begin to come out. Well, were they once saved, but now they're not? That's the Arminianist position. Or were they never really saved to begin with? That's the Calvinist position. By the way, neither Arminius nor Calvin wrote any books of the Bible. The Bible was written long before they came along. So I'm not an Arminianist. I'm not a Calvinist. I just follow the Word of God. Amen. And when there are scriptures that cause me to stop and think about the possibility that my relationship with God might be broken or cut off, not because of Him, but because of something I've done or not done, then that's what Paul means when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The only safe, logical answer is to stay with Jesus. Pastor Chuck always used to say, we are eternally secure in Christ. You stay with Jesus, you'll be fine. If not, you could be in trouble. To stay with Jesus means to continue in the teachings of Christ, not run ahead of Him. Instead, we should never get ahead of Him. We should never run ahead or go too far, we should always be behind him with him taking the lead, right? He's the only one who knows where he's going. We don't know where we're going. We've got to follow the one who knows. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. You need the whole package, you know. You need the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Being a follower of Christ is an all-or-nothing proposition. Being a believer is an all-or-nothing proposition. You're either all in or you're not in at all. As J. Vernon McGee used to say, you're either a saint or an ain't. Some people use terms like nominal Christian, backslidden Christian. You either is a saint or an ain't. How do we know if someone's truly born again? Jesus said, by their fruits you shall know them. We know they're truly born again if they continue in the teaching of Christ. Now, if someone that you know who has made a profession of faith in Christ were to come up to you and say, and I've heard several of these types lately, those two prominent people we mentioned, one was the, uh, one of the worship leaders from Hillsong, renounced his faith. The guy that wrote the book, uh, I, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, was, uh, he had a ministry of you know, encouraging teens to be celibate until marriage and so forth. He's renounced his faith. I don't remember his name. Some of you may know it. doesn't matter. But um, if someone that you knew had been professed to be a believer came up to you and said, well, I'm not a believer anymore, what would you think? Well, it wouldn't matter whether they never were or they were. The fact of the matter is that they deny Christ. If they haven't continued in the teachings of Christ, well, I, you know, now I'm a Buddhist, now I'm a Hindu, blah, blah, blah. I mean, only God knows for sure, and we continue to pray for them and hope for restoration. But John is telling us, if you don't continue in the doctrine or the teaching of Christ, then you don't know God. You know, men in general are very skeptical, leery, and even fearful of absolutes. But our God is a God of absolutes. With God, it either is or it isn't. You either are or you aren't. There's sheep, there's goats. You're either a sheep or a goat. Can't be both. You could be a shoat. Can't be a shoat. Or a geep. You're either dead or alive. And that's not even based upon physicality. Dead or alive is based upon whether or not you know God. Because if you know God, then you're not going to die. You're simply going to shed this body and get a new one. Dead or alive, true or false, black or white, right or wrong, light or darkness. Men don't like absolutes. Because they want wiggle room in there somewhere. God is a God of absolutes. John 1, 5 through 7. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. And him is no darkness at all. That's pretty absolute, isn't it? No darkness at all. God is just light. All light. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from how much sin? All sin. Final thoughts, Charles Ryrie, a man I've always respected as a Bible teacher, scholar, he says to walk in the light is to live in obedience to God's commandments. So if you weren't sure, what does that mean, walk in the light? Does that mean I have to carry a flashlight with me at all times? Do I need a battery-powered source of light? No, it means to keep God's commandments. Two things result, says Ryrie, from walking in the light. One, and it's based upon this passage we just read. One, fellowship with other believers, which we need, we desperately need. Two, continual cleansing from sin, which we also need. Since walking in the light brings to light 
other sins, just like we talked about with Psalm 139. And then David also said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Walking in the light brings to light other sins that need cleansing. We need to shine the light of God's word into our hearts on a regular basis to expose anything that shouldn't be there. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the words of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I know he loved all his disciples. He loves us too. But they had a special friendship, a special relationship, and we're thankful that they did because the teachings of John are absolutely dynamic and powerful and amazing. And Lord, we want to absorb as much of John's teaching as we possibly can. Father, we pray this morning as we prepare to sing our final worship song that you would touch each heart here. Lord, if there's anyone who needs to come for prayer today, that they would come, receive that ministry of prayer and the Holy Spirit. If there's anyone who needs salvation, that they would come and receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, even this very day, right here this morning. Father, for others who need, may need a rededication, a recommitment to get back on the right path, Lord, this is certainly a convicting passage of Scripture that we've looked at today. We pray that you would do a mighty work in the hearts and minds of everyone here today, particularly those who are sensing that need to come and receive prayer, receive ministry, whatever's going on in their lives, Lord. We just ask for a powerful outpouring of your Holy Spirit in these final moments. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.